Today we will be reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses, or Mark? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. <laughs> and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And when he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you, and how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and, convuls and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Matthew 14 is about uh, Jesus walking on water and feeding the 5,000. And the lesson from there is the same as the lesson here. Jesus is able. Jesus is powerful and majestic and able. So I pray at the end of uh, this time together, you would have a deeper appreciation for the glory of God. A deeper reason to give your life fully to him. Uh, I'm going to begin with a little interaction with you today. The question I'm going to ask is, with a show of hands, who here has been to the top of a mountain? I have, many of you. Now, if a few of you are willing, what took you to the top of the mountain? What was the reason? What was the, the effort behind the trip? Foolishness. Foolishness? Anybody else want to raise your hand to that? Yes? Yeah? A crazy, a crazy husband. Also foolishness. There we go. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Snowboarding. Snowboarding. Thank you. The view. The view. Let's, let's leave it at that. That's fantastic. Uh, now, the question is, was it truly a mountaintop experience? For Josh, no. 
for others here, absolutely. A mountaintop experience is just something that, that fills us with elation, with catharsis maybe, with joy. In our grade 11th year, my best friend and I had saved up a bit of money and we almost bought a hearse. And for those of you young people that don't know what a hearse is, it's a funeral car. We almost bought a funeral car. And we were not being morbid. We wanted it because it was a 1969 candy apple red Cadillac with a 501 cubic inch engine. And in back, it was fully reupholstered with a couch, a TV, and a VHS machine. That dates us. But what could have been cooler in high school? Anything. I don't know. The week that we were about to buy it, our youth group went on a ski trip to Banff, and my friend and I had never even been on snow. But we rented snowboards and spent the whole weekend falling down a mountain. Now here's the connection. We were in the mountains. And the vistas. And the heights. And the scenery. And the beauty from up there was unbelievable. Right here and now, I can say that I still don't think I've seen anything more amazing than the Rocky Mountains. And that was truly a mountaintop experience for me. And it was on top of a mountain, go figure. So when we went home, we immediately bought snowboards, thank you for that back there, instead of a car. And that was probably a very wise thing because a 501 cubic inch engine means it was an 8.4 liter engine. So 30 years later, we'd still be paying for the gas. Our passage today follows a mountaintop experience of Jesus' three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They had just seen Moses, the greatest of all God's prophets. And incidentally, think about this, the transfiguration would mark his first real steps into the promised land. They also saw Elijah, the prophet who never died. When it was his time to go, a chariot of fire came and swept him up to heaven. And still they saw their Lord and Master revealed in unshrouded radiance. A glimpse of the holy, a foretaste of his return in power and glory when he will finally judge the living and the dead. I didn't talk about this last week, but when Peter says, let's build three shelters, he's very likely saying, let's dwell here. Let's just stay right here at the top of the mountain. And we all do this, wanting to stay in surreal moments because we like the view or the thrill, the safety or the silence of it all. But Jesus had already told them that his destination was not the top of the mountain, but the bottom of a, a valley. His eyes were already fixed, his path unwaveringly direct. He's now journeying to Jerusalem, the place of the cross. And so we pick up from last week, descending down the mountain to be immediately confronted with a crisis. 
Mark 9.14 says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. It's like mom coming back to the kitchen and having her, seeing her kids, uh, the water's flowing out of the sink and the blender's shooting smoothie up and they're all just covered in flour. And she asks them, what just happened here? I was only gone for a minute. Jesus and the three returned from the mountain to find the other disciples surrounded by a great crowd, arguing with spiritual leaders and bewildered by what just happened. And I want you to take note that whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get into trouble. Ergo, whenever you and I are separated from Jesus, we get into great trouble. Verses 15 and 16 say, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? The crowd turns their attention pretty quickly from the altercation to Jesus. Now here's a question to ponder. Who is Jesus addressing when he asks, What are you arguing about? If it's his disciples then it kind of looks like a chastisement, basically saying, you shouldn't be engaging with these Pharisees. But if Jesus is looking at the scribes when he says, what are you talking about? It would seem protective, wouldn't it? As if he came and stood in front of his distraught disciples and confronted the scribes saying, why are you arguing with them? You ought to take up your petty quarrels with me. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Neither the Pharisees nor the disciples were able to cast out the demon. Neither the Pharisees nor the disciples answered Jesus, but instead a father in the crowd speaks up and he gives the details of the story. And now I'm going to stop right here because I want everybody to hear this piece right now. If there's anything that I want you to understand from today's message, one thing that's far more important than anything else that I'm going to say this morning, I want you to catch who the Father came to see. Verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has an evil spirit. No matter what your expertise in life is, no matter how gifted a pastor or counselor or friend you are, when someone comes to you for advice or help, if you are a believer, they are not coming to you. They're coming to Jesus. They're asking him for help. And you are only a messenger. You're only a conduit. If you don't give them Jesus, at best, you're just a hindrance. If, if people are coming, to you. It's not for you, but for Jesus. So who are you going to give them? Yourself, your best? 
or the Savior. And I mean to be super serious about this because I probably am more guilty than any of you here as an occupational hazard. So ears up, Leighton. Ears up, everyone. If someone comes to you asking for help with their children's behavior, and you don't realize that they are coming to you for Jesus, whatever amazing advice that you impart will have missed the mark. When a friend or coworker comes to you about their marriage, and you miss that they're actually looking for Jesus, you give them some tips or some pointers instead of Jesus and his word, you're actually getting in the way. And if someone speaks to you of their anxiety or their depression or their loneliness or their sin, and you miss that they are coming to you for Jesus, you've just acted in the same way as the nine disciples who Jesus left on their own. And here's a tangent, but an important one. A materialist is someone who does not believe in the spiritual world. And when they read this story, they just read epilepsy. Rigid, falling down, grinding teeth, foaming at the mouth. They say, we have a medical diagnosis for this. But in his word, Jesus calls it a demon. So should we call it anything else? When the nine disciples did all they could and the boy was no better, and the father was even more desperate, those looking to hurt Jesus jumped on this and began to argue and stir up trouble after the disciples had failed. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. We have in past sermons said that faithless generation is a phrase used of Israel throughout the Bible. It's found in Deuteronomy 23 and Isaiah 65 and Jeremiah 5, Philippians 2. But as Jesus is looking out over the chaos that's surrounding him, I believe he's pronouncing it certainly on all of Israel, but specifically on his chosen apostles. Because they still don't get it. They still lack understanding and faith. One scholar puts it this way. The rhetorical questions, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? expresses the loneliness and the anguish of the only authentic believer that there is in a world which expresses only unbelief. Jesus alone sees God and sees the truth. From the mountaintop to the valley, Jesus is now surrounded by quarreling and hopelessness and pessimism and the demonic what else should he do but sigh and groan out of sorrow? A sorrow for the once perfect state of the world. Sorrow for the plight of his lost people and the distance of his own followers from God. He's the one authentic believer in the whole wide world. And he alone is faithful among this and every other generation. And he knows that his time with them is short. How long shall I bear with you, he says. 
verses 20 and following. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. When the spirit sees Jesus, true to form, it remains mute. But it thrashes and foams and dashes the boy in protest, in utter rebellion to God's righteous Messiah. What terror for a dad, for a family. Can't leave him alone, can't leave him unwatched. Since childhood, the demon has tried to kill him. Now this is the final demonic confrontation in the book of Mark. Though you could argue that all opposition to Jesus, especially at the cross, is demonic in nature. But just like Jesus' interaction with the demon-possessed man of the tombs from Mark chapter 5, the utter wreckage and devastation of the pig herd plummeting over and into the sea shows what the demonic cause has always been. That nothing of God, nothing of creation, nothing of value be left standing. Fire and water and all possible dangers become a means to mar and to murder the child. To vandalize God's creation. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And we should have no problem reading that it's the devil and his demons that come to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John 8.44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. There's a spiritual battle being raged, though you and I don't often see it, as other generations did and as other cultures do. And the fact that we don't see it should cause us to be even more vigilant, more aware, should drive us even more to battle with the weapons of the word and prayer. Piper said something that I've been thinking about quite a bit this month. He said, you cannot understand prayer until you know that life is war. You cannot understand prayer, our desperate need for prayer, till you know that life is war. I don't feel like a warrior too often. I don't, I don't do battle. And the father then says, if you can do anything, will you help us? Oh, faithless generation, if, if, dear man, even the leper of Mark 1 said, if you will, you can make me clean. Church, I will tell you right now that this is how we are to petition God. 
We are not to command him, do this. And we're not to do it from doubt, if you can, but from faith. We are to pray, God, we know you can. So we ask that if you are willing, please heal. Please cast out. Please rescue. It starts with if. (laughs) But it's supposed to be, we know that you can. Now, the father actually might have started out talking to the local religious leaders, even the disciples saying, I know God can deliver my boy. Will you help us? But at this point, the exasperation of failure upon failure, upon trial, upon disappointment, has led the father to question Jesus by muttering if. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the, la- the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Job 42, 2, You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Matthew 19, 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. How about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mark 9, 24, immediately the father of the child cried out. And this might be a summation of all Christian faith. When he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know about you, but this verse resonates so deeply with me. This verse sums up all of my doubts and beliefs, my hopes and my uncertainties. Here, this statement is about demonic possession, but elsewhere it could be about the future, our limited understanding, our desires, our worries and fears. I believe, help my unbelief. Could be about our sufferings or our trials, our temptations, or even our very confidence that God is even good. Such is so honest, so humble, so hopeful, truly. The Father's belief is frail, it's faltering. But remember, faith the size of a mustard seed is big enough. The father calls out, my faith is small, my mind is weak, my trust is partial, my hope is almost all run out. But he knows what his need is. Because he knows that if Jesus doesn't deliver this boy, this boy will not be delivered. Lord, help me in spite of me. Verses 25 and 6. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he is dead. At this point, more people are gathering to the spectacle, so Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy. And after a violent display of revolt, the spirit obeys because it has no choice. And the child crumbles like a corpse. And just like the crowd surrounding Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, this crowd believed that the lad was dead, that there was no more that could be done. He's dead. Which brings to mind an old Marx Brothers, maybe it's an Abbott and Costello sketch, something like, doctor, tell me please, how did the surgery go? Oh well, the surgery was an incredible success, but unfortunately we lost the patient. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The boy was as dead, meaning not gone, not dead. But in the same way as with Jairus' daughter, who was actually dead. Jesus took the lad's hand and lifted him up. Now we are not to miss the resurrection language found in both stories. Literally, he raises him up, and he was resurrected. The demon cast out and the child given new life. Not demons, nor the grave have the power over Christ. He has and will conquer both. The cross will not end in death, but in the triumph of life by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to see the contrast that Mark highlights between the transfiguration and the healing of this boy. The one is on the mountaintop and the other in the valley. On the mountain, the kingdom of God is on display and in the valley, the kingdom of Satan is on display. In the first, a son is radiantly glorified and in the next, a son is terribly demonized. A father is honored by his son. A father is horrified by his son. The disciples are confused and lack understanding. The disciples are defeated and lack power. A lesson about the future and a display of divine power. A lesson about faith and a directive for human prayer. Which brings us to the final verse. Verses, rather. There's two. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind, sorry, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Lord, what went wrong? We've been casting out demons since chapter six. They're not rookies. They've seen Christ's authority displayed and they've exercised it themselves. And now yet, they're stunned when it all falls apart. And they ask, why could we not cast it out? Jesus answers them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it looks like Jesus is saying that this type of demon can only be moved by prayer. 
this is a special breed that requires prayer. But that, that is not, after all, what he is saying. As if there are some kinds of demons that will leave by being shooed with a feather duster and others that will need more effort and prayer. That's ludicrous. What Jesus is saying is that casting out of demons and all such spiritual conflict of this nature requires prayer. This kind more generally means this kind of situation requires prayer, requires your faith and your trust in God. And what he's actually saying, the lesson that this verse is really teaching is not so much that they lacked prayer, which they did, but that they were trying to do the work on their own steam. Doing the work of Jesus from their own ability. Not depending upon God, but being fully dependent on self. Saying, I got this. Verse 29 is such a pure and true lesson about discipleship. The nine that failed found themselves in a situation that they'd been in before. And sure, they didn't pray, but moreover, they didn't turn to God in any way. They didn't seek for his answers, for his strength, for his wisdom or his will. If the number one lesson from the beginning of this passage was that people are coming to you not for you but for Jesus, then the corollary lesson here, the final lesson of this passage is one that ties right into the first. That we never advance beyond our need for Jesus. There's no level higher than the gospel. That's it. We need Christ. People are coming to you not for you, but for Jesus, so know that you never advance beyond the need for him. There's no situation in life that are on our own. We are prepared and equipped enough to handle without Christ. You aren't wise enough, strong enough, experienced enough. You and I aren't stable enough or hardy enough, or gentle enough, or capable enough, or skilled enough, or clever enough to handle what's before us adequately outside of our relationship with the Lord God. As the old hymn says, I need thee every hour. There is nothing in this life that is of consequence that you and I can do without Jesus. We are living stones fitted together into a spiritual house, and I am no good to you without my cornerstone, Jesus. How am I going to stand on my own without Jesus? How am I going to hold you up next to me if I'm not first tight against the cornerstone? What are any of us, what good are any of us apart from Christ? And I'm convinced that the lesson of the disciples' failure is that they were acting on their own. And I'm convinced that that is the lesson that I am to learn in my moments of failure. Same as you. Same as that of Peter at the, at the cross. When Jesus said from Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. 
but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. But Peter, his answer was just too quick, wasn't it? Too confident, really. There was no plea for help. No acknowledgement that the coming situation could be bigger than he could handle. Instead, he just knew that he didn't want to fail. He just knew that he wanted to stand alongside Jesus in his hardest hour. But that's as deep as it got. So he missed Jesus' words completely. That he prayed that his faith may not fail. Faith being the very gift of God that enables us to lean on him when we don't know the outcome. To trust him when we can't manage on our own. And we can never manage on our own. Jesus' final words in today's passage ring ever true. Whatever situation you find yourselves in, whether talking to your child or exhorting someone to repentance, whether supporting your spouse or sitting with someone at their deathbed. That situation demands that you are depending and trusting and clinging to God. In humility, faithful people happily declare that there is nothing in this life easy enough for them to do on their own. That's faith. The stakes are too high. Jesus' death and resurrection not only bought salvation for those who believe, but it granted access, direct access to the throne of God through prayer. And it provides every strength needed to accomplish his will day by day. You and I can do nothing that really matters without his strength. Faith is the bridge between my weakness and his strength. Faith is the bridge between my impotence and his omnipotence. Faith is the bridge between my limitations and the Lord's sufficiency. Praise God. Both the mountain and the valley revealed Jesus power and his glory, his ability and his desire to save. And we need that every hour. Amen. Let's pray. God, we confess that we think we know too much. We're smarter than we are. We understand more than we do. That we are confident in our own abilities all the time. And then when we fail, we say, what went wrong? How come I couldn't do it, Lord? Where were you? 
Oh, Lord, open our eyes. Unplug our ears. Help us to spend time in your word and with people that build us up, that point to you, so that in all of our interactions, we also would only ever point to Christ. Because we're hopeless without Jesus. We're hapless, helpless. Oh, but the cross, the finished work of Christ, means that in Jesus, we can obey. We can pursue holiness. We can love justice, love the mercy of God. Be bold in sharing the truth. Be bold in witnessing of who Christ is and what he is able to do. Lord, I pray for this church, my family here. That we would stop messing around and that we would fall down at the foot of the cross. Every morning, every evening, throughout the day. That we would not walk this alone, but we would walk this life hand in hand with our Savior.